Hi, I'm Andalisi. And I'm Chef James Zergato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we talk with culinary historian, New York Times bestselling cookbook author, and Emmy-nominated television host Katie Parla about her new book, Food of the Italian Islands. We talk to her, of course, about food, living in Italy, and her favorite places to eat. Hi, Katie. Ciao, how are you? How are you? It's good to hear from you. Thank you for talking with us. Oh, I'm thrilled. Yeah, hi, Katie. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. I just uh, I love the grab bag that you just offer <laughs> the world with just like, oh, thanks. you know, the, the podcast and the content, the free content, the curated stuff. I'm actually doing a walking tour with your colleague next month. In oh, Rome. amazing. Yeah, oh, you're going to have the best time. I'm stoked. I just booked it. And I believe you have a... Uh, I think I think I can say friend. You know Anthony Lombardo here in Detroit. He's a good friend I know, he's of ours. I think he's. I think I can say friend <laughs> of yours. I, I don't. Think that's overreaching. If maybe you hate his guts, but we we love him. I don't hate his guts at all. He's a total G, and I'm obsessed with his food. And I'll be coming to Detroit with the book. So that, that's great. Uh, and Anthony's always so nice to host and support. So big fan over here. Because you did. I think you did a dinner with another book, right? Yeah, with Food of the Italian South in 2019. And it was such an epic night. It was so special. I got a little tour of Detroit. It was incredible. And I'm kind of like pissed at myself that it's been four years since I've been. So I'm excited to get back. Well, hey, we're, we're happy to have you back in the city. And definitely let us know. Anne and I will take you around as well. We'll, we'll, and we'll, go, to the, we'll go to the dinner for sure. <laughs> Katie, do you, know, do you know when you're coming back to Detroit? Uh, we're going to nail down dates pretty soon, but we were talking late August. Late August. Okay, that's good to know. So we can make sure we're around for when you're here. Thanks for talking with us. Um, you've been going to Italy for 25 years or actually living in Italy for 25 years. What's the biggest thing that you've learned, not just about food, but about the culture that you didn't know when you went into it? I mean, I didn't know anything when I got there. I grew up in in an Italian-American family in New Jersey saying like, I'm Italian, but not knowing the language, the culture, the kind of like subtle, unspoken subtext, like totally clueless. So I've learned everything. Um, I think the number one takeaway is that you should never leave the house with wet hair. That is a universal, <laughs> if you want to alienate yourself from 60 million people fast, you don't dry your hair before you go outside. Everyone will intervene. Uh, they're very concerned about your health and honestly, like, profoundly offended on a personal level. And so that's that's a little tip for travelers. Oh, that's brilliant. You know, when you when you just said uh, they're concerned about your health, it brings me to this one point in the book when you were talking about how Italians, you know, decide what they're going to eat when it comes to digestion. Oh, yeah. You got to digest. Really fascinating. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, if you've encountered Italian cuisine in Italy, um, you have no doubt been confronted with a menu that features a number of courses. Those courses are served in an order that kind of comes through digestive trial and error. So you start with like a small, it could be a fatty dish, some cheese, cured meats, but a small portion of it. Then you move on to your starch. That could be pasta or rice or polenta, depending on where you are. Then you get a little protein, a lot of vegetables, and desserts often fruit. I know... Everyone thinks we sit around like chugging tiramisu all day long, but actually fruit either like very aggressively cooked until it's very soft or served fresh is important because you got to insert fiber into uh, the the litany of aforementioned dishes in order to properly digest things. And when people are judging 
a pizza, a trattoria, really any food experience, they might acknowledge at the end of the meal that it was good, but they're, they'll, get a, they'll let you know the next morning if they've prof- processed it efficiently or if they had to wake up and drink a lot of water. There's certainly um, an acknowledgement that food is not just for pleasure, but also nourishment and your body needs to sort of respond appropriately. We might want to adopt that in the United yeah, States I'm, a little bit. You know, <laughs> I think, that would be great. I, and I wonder because, you know, I'm obviously, uh, you know, I share I share that kind of like dilemma of like, you, you know, people say they're Italian. You know, I have family that I grew up with that are like, oh, I'm Italian. It's like, well, you know, it's Italian-American versus Italian are very different things. And both can be wonderful. But, you know, when you come back and you eat in Italian-American restaurants, like, do you do you have that nostalgia and that love of kind of the big, silly, like, you know, chicken parm and, and, you know, meatballs, or do you, does living in Italy spoil you to where you come back and Italian American feels clunky? Like, how do you walk that line? Look, they're very distinct cuisines. And while there might be a little sort of nugget of origin in a lot of uh, Italian American dishes, dishes from Italy, they're really different, especially portion size. So I love an Italian American red sauce joint. I love a chicken parm the size of my head. I just serve it with a side of Tums. (laughs) Yeah, fair. All right, Katie, let's talk about your latest book, um, Food of the Italian Islands. And what got you to, you know, get to this point of saying, this is what I'm going to cover next. The islands are next on my list. You've probably been amassing information and writing notes for a couple of decades here. But uh, talk about this book and what got you to want to write this particular book. Well, my previous title was Food of the Italian South, which tackled the Lower Peninsula, and I deliberately excluded Sicily because I wanted to give it its own platform. Uh I didn't want to rob any attention from Molise or Basilicata because Sicily does loom so large and the cuisine is just so magnificent. And so when it came time to write the next book, I only want to write things that I'm super passionate about. I have passion for Sicily, my ancestral homeland. I'm fully obsessed with Sardinia. And so when I kind of launched the project, I thought Sicily and Sardinia are going to be great, a great couple. But then what about Ponza and Procida and Giglio and all of these other places? I saw that they had a lot of sort of themes in common, uh, diets that aren't fish-based historically, but instead really rely on pork and lamb and lots of vegetables and tons of legumes, things that you could raise inland where it was safer. And so I saw that there was maybe a story to tell about island cuisines in general, while also breaking down uh, some unique factors. And, you know, you've leafed through the book, so there's a section dedicated to Sicilian street food and Venetian aperitivo culture. So there certainly are distinct rituals that take place in each area, but the islands really do have a lot of commonalities. You put Sardinia first. How come? It's the best and greatest place. This whole entire book project is a thinly veiled effort to make everyone want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, yeah, I, I am, uh, I'm very fascinated with the book as well. I'm, I, it's just, it's beautiful and it's very thoughtful too with the QR codes and kind of the, the, you know, cookbooks nowadays, you, you mean, you're very, you're very conscious that like not everyone reads a book front to back and some people cherry pick and need content now and it needs to lead to other content. So it's actually a very well put together book and I'm sure you've learned now, you know, I mean, 85 different contributions, you know, through, through books, editing and writing and. I think it's no surprise that you have, uh, you know, that you have a book that's so uh, vast, but yet so specific. Well, thank you so much for that. And, you know, I am aware of my limits. I am a writer. I can tell you how to 
pinch Cooler Jones clothes, but it's going to be a lot better for you if I just show you with a video, which is accessed through a QR code. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, I haven't seen, I mean, I'm sure other people have done that, but I haven't seen that yet in the book. It's great. Thank and you. also, Katie, talk about what got you uh, to take a different approach, a more thematic approach. These blue bubbles um, are so great because they're like a guide. Like, you want to eat this, then try this or put this. Um, what got you to decide that that would be a way to approach this book? Well, thank you so much for noticing that design feature. Throughout the book, there are these blue bubbles, which are obviously supposed to kind of evoke the sea. And they, uh, you know, they might appear on a page of swordfish meatballs. And then it says, hey, like pair this with the caper salad from the other chapter. And, you know, in Italy, I, I mentioned this earlier, we eat in courses, you know, we sit down and we have one and then the plate goes away and another one comes. That's not the way people eat in the States. And so I wanted people, rather than seeing the necessity to fully recreate a five-course meal to feel more free to mix and match with a little bit of guidance. And so, you know, where there's like an unctuous dish, um, I'm like, hey, throw in some like acidic salad al alongside that. So that was the reasoning uh, behind the the beautiful, very charming blue bubbles. I think too, what I noticed when I go to Italy that I, I, I love bitter flavors. And here in the Midwest, that's uh, can be a challenge, even just down to like radicchio, um, you know, the Midwest does not embrace bitter the way that Italy does. And I think obviously Italy does it for so much, you know, for digestion, but, you know, Amar, I think Amar, you know, Amaro culture has taken off, um, spritz culture has taken off, but you know, the, the, the bitter greens, the bitter lettuces that when I go to Italy, that's always the first thing that I really fall in love with again is like, oh my God, like just a celebration of like dandelion and just, you know, those kind of, you know, notes. So it's always nice to see a book celebrate any kind of you know, spritz or Amaro or, or bitter green. Oh Do yeah. You... And I'm, I'm doing it all because I, there's a whole cocktail <laughs> chapter where it's like, make your own, build your own digestivo with bitter flavors. Of course there's a little right, sweetness was, to it too. I was going to say, do you have a go-to? Like, do you have like, if you're like, you know, if you're going in blind and you, you can't see the bar, like, do you have a spritz or Amaro that you lean towards or that you yep. always order? For spritz, I'm always going for the select spritz, um, which is Venice's red bitter liqueur. Um, now that Aperol was acquired by Campari and was really blown up globally, that's kind of the dominant, uh, much more sweet uh, red liqueur that, that finds its way into most spritzes in the world. But I love a little Venetian spritz made with Select, which is kind of red and bright like Campari, but its bitterness and sweetness fall somewhere between Campari and um, Aperol. And honestly, when I'm looking for an Amaro, more often than not, there's a homemade one in the back that doesn't have a pretty bottle, a pretty label. So I always ask, do you have like a Genziana? Do you have an Amaro fatto in casa? And, uh, you know, you can, of course, find the the big guys everywhere. But I, I find just, you know, interrogating the server about what's not displayed uh, always leads to some really fun, uh, bitter things. And, you know, bitter's better. Uh, it's, you know, it's funny you say that because, you know, I have a good friend. I spent a lot of time in Abruzzo and Genziana is one of my favorite things to drink. And I, I, I was there for a wedding and I came back uh, and one of, you know, my friend's uncle made, made Genziana. He like, you know, hunts it and makes it and dries it and does all the things. And, uh, you know, the gentian root, obviously. And uh, I brought back a bottle. It was probably eight ounces and I had it. I was, you know, taking little sips, kind of savoring it. And Anthony Lombardo came over and I showed him. I was like, hey, look what Uncle Tony gave me. And Anthony chugged the rest of it. It was like six ounces of Gen C. Like, literally opened it and tr he drank the whole six ounces. And not only that, but I was like, that's more than you need. But that was, uh, yeah. I mean, Genciana is one of my favorites for sure. That's that's, yeah. We don't, you, you, you can't really find, you can't find it here as well. 
You only need a little sip to digest, Anthony. I know. <laughs> tell, yeah, tell Anthony. Yeah, Anthony, if you're listening, take it easy. <laughs> we'll be right back right after this. I'm Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. You know, Katie, one of the things that I found fascinating was the history that you offered and presented um, in terms of how certain foods got to, like Sicily, for instance. Um, That really opened my eyes to um, realizing that it took a long time for tomatoes to get there and eggplant to get there. Um, Did you uh, know a lot about this history when you went there, or was that part of your whole journey to learn about where the food actually came from and how it got to these islands. So for the book, I did a little extra investigation, but, you know, I've been visiting Sicily for a long time and always was interested in reading up either in an archival setting or in cultural history books about how ingredients arrive and how they become part of the food culture. And you're right about tomatoes. They arrive from the Americas into Spanish dominion, which included the Iberian Peninsula and Sicily and Southern Italy. And at first, they're mostly just treated as ornamental. I mean, they are, like, very beautiful, obviously. But they weren't food for most people until uh, just a couple of hundred years ago. Whereas more caloric, uh, easily easily sellerable produce like potatoes were embraced and ended up in sweets and in savory dishes, too. So it's really interesting to kind of get into the mindset of, you know, ninth century uh, Sicilians who are encountering sweet citrus and sour citrus and eggplants for the first time and imagine how they would have been um, sort of encountering them and then actually see the documents that refer to these things, either the agriculture behind them or their use in recipes. It's it's endlessly fascinating. And because there's so many uh, pieces of uh, scholarship out there, you can really sort of cobble together a history of these ingredients with some legwork. Um, one of the other things that I found fascinating was the knife presentation, the Sardinian knives. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I'm a knife lady. Um, I am obsessed (laughs) with blades. I have a kind of terrifying collection in my apartment of sheep shears and machetes and all sorts of agricultural uh, instruments. And we've established I'm obsessed with Sardinia. So when I started visiting the island, I would uh, always, you know, go to the local knife shop and every village has, if not a knife shop, then a dude who makes knives uh, and you have to pay him cash and it's, you know, not very legal, but it's fine. Um, and so in Sardinia, because of the the agricultural nature of the island, you have knives that were created for specific uses, whether it's um, grafting plants or skinning boars. Um, and they're really beautiful pieces. The handles are, you know, polished and carved. The blades uh, can be um different shapes. And I I just, I'm so intrigued by that. And it's also a way to meet locals. I mean, you can definitely order offline. I think there's a site called like sardinianknives.it, but uh, it's really fun to be able to, you know, be invited into someone's house, see their knife stash, and then find the local bancomat so you can pay them for their work. 
That's pretty cool. You know, you mentioned potatoes too. It's, I feel like it's kind of funny because I, I, there's a lot of pizza and bread potato culture there more than, I don't say more, but equal, if, if not more to, to, to tomato. Like people associate pizza in America with, I mean, it's without tomato, people would argue that it's not pizza here, but I feel like it in, in, in Rome and in other, you know, in, in other parts of Italy, you see so much potato in bread and in pizza. Absolutely. It brings a caloric heft to something like a focaccia dough or a pasta dough or even a cookie dough. Food of the Italian South has a potato cookie in it. And it might sound odd, but it's a, a starchy, flavorful ingredient that uh, brings, you know, literally just calories. Uh, a lot of the recipes in, in the books were developed by peasants who were really interested not just in feeding themselves and getting calories, but also flavor. Um Impoverished people want to eat delicious food. It gives them dignity. And so the potato served as this really crucial ingredient across cultures throughout the South and the islands. Katie, when you do when you um, publish a book, do you have a, an Italian version of it that's translated into Italian? Do Italians want to read a book that feels like it's for us to get educated about that country? But what is that relationship like when you release a book? So only one of my titles has been translated into Italian. Um, and, you know, I'm definitely writing with not just an American audience in mind. I want anyone with um, interest in Italian regional cuisines to be able to walk away having learned something. So if there are any Italian publishers out there, I am available for a negotiation on foreign rights. Happy to sell them with the right terms. So we'll, we'll have to translate this episode in Italian. Va bene. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, Katie, I have, a, I have a question because you, you know, I've read some of your, um, you know, restaurant uh, re referrals and, uh, you know, and the kind of definitely eat here and the definitely don't eat here. Uh, you know, touch points. Do you, have you ever had pushback or an interesting interaction with a business owner or business a chef or whatever that you said, Hey, stay out of this restaurant. It kind of sucks. Like, do you, and then do you cross paths with these businesses? Like I have to imagine you're known on these walking tours. And if you tell somebody, you know, do you tell your public, <laughs> stay out of this pizzeria? It sucks. Does anybody it's ever, happened. Uh, yeah, I was just saying, is there any that come to mind that like, uh, were you ever, uh, regretful or like, okay, we're going to take a different street next time we do this walking tour. It's not like I'm watching my back out there, but there definitely have been encounters. Once I visited a, a very famous restaurant near the Vatican called L'Arcangelo, Archangel, and the meal was apocalyptic. And so I, I thought I did was a, I did what I thought was a very like funny, tongue in cheek, like Book of Revelation referenced <laughs> uh, review, oh which uh, a negative review is called a stroncatura. And after I published it. We're talking like a year after I published it, some Italian blog picked it up and all hell broke loose. I got like invited back to the restaurant for this big like apocalypse dinner. And it was so weird. Um, in the end, like I was right. The food was bad that day. But uh, but yeah, the, the response can sometimes be a little uh, over dramatic. Which I think that's on brand for, you know, just Italian, you know, business operators and, and restaurateurs. I feel like. You know, there was that Puglia chef who was with the with the with the his oh, mouth grows? mold. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like you see that's just well, like that bad. I, yeah, yeah. That was you know, there's just a there just seems to be like a, a lot of romance. It's a, it's a you know, a people of passion uh, and, and in both ways. Well, I think no one wants to hear that 
their food is terrible um, or that the experience is terrible it's, or that someone's not understanding what they're putting on the table. But there's another la- layer there. Um, it's very bad form to make someone lose face in public. So while in maybe a, a political setting, politicians might go after each other, but in other sectors, it's like it's kind of rude uh, and a, a cultural faux pas to do what I did, which was to write a, an honest uh, review. Uh, it's one of the reasons there isn't a lot of uh, what you might consider um, uh, unbiased food journalism in Italy. It's you know it falls into the realm of uh, sort of a lack of uh, lack of tact. And do you lean against that? Are you continuing to kind of write write reviews like that and kind of and kind of push back, or have you kind of said, okay, this is a cultural norm that I'm adjusting to, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be more, you know, I'm gonna back off a little bit. You know, I have a huge responsibility to my readers um, who often crowdsource different recommendations. And sometimes people come to my site and they see my recommendations and I want them to see the places that I discourage that are not worth their time, that are run by people who maybe aren't properly paying their staff or who just are generally problematic um, and wouldn't otherwise have uh, have the indication that they should, you know, avoid the place like the plague. Um, I do not want to compromise my uh, values in that sense. And so even though like uh, maybe a, a better businesswoman would just like go with the flow and assimilate, I don't do that. So. Got it. Is, it, <laughs> is there a restaurant now? Let's say you're off the clock. You're not thinking about, which I'm sure is very rare, but let's just say, wh- do you have one restaurant in Rome that you have been to the most as a regular, just like you hanging out, maybe it's near your apartment. That's not necessarily uh, you know, a business affiliation or, or like a recommendation you're trying to write. Like just, what is your most frequent place that you are a regular in Rome? So whether I'm going by myself, with my boyfriend, with my parents, a friend, a chef, whatever, I'm going to Cesare al Casaletto. It's not super central, but it's easy to get there on a tram. And it's kind of a neo-trattoria that is, it's serving like soulful, thoughtful Roman classics, but there's also uh, linen on the table and an insane wine list. And it's super special. And I recommend it all the time. I write a lot of uh, restaurant reviews and lists and it's in there. Um, so there's no chance that there's a sort of special secret Parla approved spot. That's not going uh, <laughs> to no, be available I, to I, the I, readers. <laughs> yeah. I'm just curious about where you go the most, like where are you not sick of trying the, the food? I'm sure on some of these walking tours you have, I mean, I've done, I've done a few of these around the world and like, I feel like when you go, sometimes you see the host that's like, I'm not, I'm not partaking in the food today. Like I have three more of these tours and I can't, you know, I can't handle it. I'm, I'm where, like, is, is there a place where you're like, oh, I never get sick of the food. I never get sick of the food. Uh, at Mordier Vi, the artichoke sandwich and the brisket sandwich are amazing. I never get sick of the potato and mozzarella pizza at Pizzarium. I never get sick of the roasted uh, chicken at Panificio Bonchi. I never get sick of the pizza rosa at Rosciali. Like the list yep. goes on. The places that well I said. take people on tours are the places that I would be at anyway. Um, and places where, you know, I think if you're a, a visitor to Rome, like you shouldn't eat every meal seated at a at a restaurant or a trattoria. You got to graze. You got to eat the way that locals eat, often on a budget, often on the fly. Uh, and those places are all perfect to me. Yeah. I think that's why you know, you're, you're, you have such a success with it. I mean, just like I said, I, I love, I just love the diversity you're offering content and where, where are people finding you mostly? Is it, is it Instagram? Is it, is it Twitter? Like where, where are you finding that like most people are connecting through you? 
So um, definitely Instagram. I'm at Katie Parla. And uh, I have the same handle on Facebook. Um, and also just through like SEO. I built a new site last year and we worked on SEO, something I had never thought about for like a solid two decades of having a website. That was a mistake. Um, but, you know, I wanted people to be able to find all these free resources on my site and to really be able to think, okay, I'm going to the Amalfi Coast or Puglia, or I'm going to Sicily and have those city guides pop up, uh, you know, on the first page of Google rankings. And that way people can have uh, what I think is uh, a very honest uh, recounting of what they can expect at the table in those places. Thank you so much, Katie. Uh, congratulations on the book, Food of the Italian Islands. Uh, we hope to see you next time you're in Detroit. Can't wait. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you so much, you. Katie. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Ciao. You, you as well. Ciao. We would like to thank you for listening. Essential Cooking is produced by me, and Alisi, along with my co-host, Chef James Rigato. This episode was also produced, engineered, edited, and mastered by Connor Anderson, with production support from David Lyons. Original music by the Mallet Brothers. Essential Cooking is a production of WDET's public radio station.